Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, Stephanie Desmond talks to Ronnie Neff, an expert on food systems and public health at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. They discuss why some grocery store shelves are empty during the pandemic, whether we will run out of food, and what lessons she and others are trying to glean from this crisis. Let's listen. Today I'm here with Ronnie Neff of the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. Today we're going to talk about her expertise in food systems and public health, especially in light of the coronavirus pandemic. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So we're all going to the grocery stores and seeing at least some empty shelves, and it's making us all a little worried. Are we going to run out of food? So when we go to the store and we see those empty shelves, and it does tap into our anxieties that, that are swirling around in general, but the food industry is telling us pretty clearly that those empty shelves are a matter of supply and logistics and getting stocked back up because we're buying so much food in the short term. But there's a lot of food in the system. At the same time, there are a lot of points of fragility in the food system that we need to be focused on to make sure that we do have a continued food supply and also that everybody is able to eat. Where are those fragile points? So, and I don't want to say that fragile in the sense of like we're in danger of collapse. I want to say it in the sense of these are the places we really need to um, focus on and shore up. And one of the places that we really need to be thinking about is, you know, our food system has a lot of very sophisticated logistics and structures and businesses, but um, really at its heart, it's the um, many, many workers across the food supply chain that keep this all going. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to make sure that they are protected and provided for. And I think that this is a time when the workers for many of us have been kind of invisible and suddenly we're like seeing them and recognizing them um, and even thanking them for all of the contributions they've been making. Mm-hmm. Is there concern about uh, what if they get sick? If they get sick, then um, I mean, there's a few things. One is we need to do everything we can to protect them um, because they are you know, being asked to put themselves at risk day by day. And so we need to make sure that there are adequate protections for them, both in terms of preventing them from getting sick and making sure that there are supports for them as they do. And I can, I'm happy to talk more about that. Um, and at the same time, also, um, you know, we need backup uh, labor and we need um, structures so that there are people out there who can play those roles um, when they're needed. You sort of talked about how the workers are invisible. I think a lot to a lot of us, sort of this whole process of how we get our food is sort of invisible, right? I mean, we we show up at the grocery store and there's the food. We don't think much about how it got there. Absolutely. And and suddenly, like, we're all kind of thinking about it and wondering what does it take. And so I think that's really good that we are having a chance to think about that. I think also um, people who have been struggling with food insecurity have been kind of invisible to us as a society, you know, to a certain extent. And suddenly a lot of people are saying, well, that could be me. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, that's another aspect of our food system that's becoming much more visible. Mm-hmm. One thing that I, I guess my friends and I talk about and I, and I wonder about, I see things on the internet, which of course we all have to uh, take with a grain of salt, but there's a question, I guess, about how safe is the food, right? So how safe is the food itself? in this situation with coronavirus and our communities and how safe is the packaging? When I come home, am I bringing coronavirus into my house? So I'm not a food scientist. Let me start right. by saying that. But from everything that I understand, the food itself is not really considered to be a significant risk. There is a sense to which, you know, the virus can adhere to the packaging um, for varying lengths of time, depending on the type of packaging. And so, we should take adequate precautions like washing our hands and things like that. From everything that I understand, the main risk is still from the actual more direct exposures to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's like advice out there like, you know, take all your food and put it in the garage for a week and spray it down with chemicals. And it's like, what kind of food safety risks are we introducing by putting our food outside for a week um, outside the refrigerator? So I think, you know, it's all partly common sense and, you know, taking precautions where we can, but also really looking at where the main risks are. And some of this, as I was saying before, like has to do with the fact that we've got so much anxiety in general that, you know, we're putting it onto various places, but not, you know, at the same time, like the biggest thing that we can do to protect ourselves is just stay inside when we, if we're able. Right. Limit our trips to the grocery store as much as possible as well. Limit those trips. Yep. Right. So you touched on food insecurity, but I want to get a little deeper into that. Let's define that for the listeners first. So food insecurity, if you think about affordability, accessibility, and access and acceptability of the food. So you have to be able to afford it, which means um, having enough money to afford it, and also that the food prices are at an affordable level, and not just for processed foods, but for um, fruits and vegetables as well. And then there's the access issue in terms of being able to get to the store, especially when things like public transit is shut down or we're under quarantine or there are people for who, like if you're over age 65 or something like that, where you're being told not to go out. So what does all that mean in terms of the ability to access food? And then there's acceptability. Like if you're on, for example, some kind of a special medical diet, if you have food allergies, all those things. If you have um, a religious restrictions, can you get the food that you need, given that there are now more limits to what kind of food might be available in some cases? Mm-hmm. It seems as though what a lot of people have done, of course, is go out and buy a lot of food, and then they you know, just stock up, and that's leading to some of the shortages. But not everybody can afford to mm-hmm. do that. Yeah, and that's definitely been an issue. And and. If people who can afford to are going out there and stocking up and buying up so much of the food when others who can only buy, you know, in a more limited quantity get there and the shelves are bare, what are they going to do? And if it takes going to multiple stores, for some people that's easy, but if you are either very limited on time or if you're in a rural area where distances are far, gas is expensive, things like that, that becomes a real problem. Um, we also hear reports that um, you go to the stores and only the luxury items are left on the shelf. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So, and hopefully a lot of this will kind of get back under control relatively soon because the food business is pretty aware and they're pretty adaptable. And so they, you know, it's, it's a matter of kind of getting the systems back in place 
in terms of a lot of this issue. Mm -hmm. I understand that for a long time, grocery chains, for example, had lots and lots of food in the warehouse, but they don't really do that anymore. Is that right? I mean, there are still warehouses that are plenty full and there's, you know, large supplies of frozen and preserved foods. But generally speaking, our food supply is much more of a so-called just-in-time kind of system. So, yeah, that means that we don't have a a big store of food the way that, you know, um, historically we once did. And that's a shift in how all industry in this country has kind of began to operate is much more, um, quote, lean which mm-hmm. means that there's less resiliency in a time of crisis. Right, which we're seeing right now, right? When I go to the store and I want to buy flour, of all things, I there's no flour on the shelves, which that surprised me. Yeast, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I couldn't find any yeast. Everyone's I, baking. Yeah, that's an interesting thing as well. Yeah, it, because what we do with our anxieties, right? Right. um, We're providing for our families. We're going back to basics. And also, I think um, the smell of fresh baking bread is is comforting, too. Mm -hmm. What sort of lessons are we learning from this pandemic in terms of food systems? And what lessons do you think we will learn? Great question. So I think generally speaking, there's been some planning and preparedness going on for all kinds of threats and disruptions to food systems, but not nearly enough and not for the most part specific to the types of needs that would happen in the case of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll just give you a quick example. So um, we worked with Baltimore City to develop a plan for preparing its food system for all kinds of things that could happen. And it was one of the first cities in the country to do something like that. And we mentioned pandemics, but it just wasn't really, you know, there were just so many other potential crises that this wasn't near the top of the list. Um, And now I think a lot of people are thinking about, you know, the types of things that you would do for other crises are not necessarily the same ones you need to do for a pandemic because of the infection risk. So just as a quick example of that, like, for example, if you have school food, there's all kinds of systems set up for, you know, how are we going to get food to people in a hurricane? Um, And we'll have this distribution site and everybody will come and they'll eat food. Well, now we have to actually give it out. It's like that um, in, in packages um, for people to take home, it's, it's a completely different model. We don't want people hanging out, hanging out. We don't want them lining up. Some cities are even using school buses to just take it around to the areas. So we've had to really innovate quickly. So some of the lessons that we're learning are of what kinds of innovations are most useful in the case of a pandemic and also the need to be preparing much more in advance. We also, um, for those of us who are researchers, are looking at what kind of data we need to collect so we can understand in the future in a more detailed way what do we need to be doing. Mm -hmm. What kind of data are you collecting? So we're collecting um, a few things. We're doing a few surveys to understand in more detail how this is playing out in terms of food access and food security, and also in terms of people's um, ability to use services and what their experiences are. Um, We're doing a survey with workers about their experiences and perceptions and needs. And then we're also collecting data of a whole. We've been developing um, over time a list of what they call indicators to create like a a kind of a a dashboard where you could track um, how this is playing out in different ways. And so we've been developing these indicators for a year or two. And because Baltimore City was saying, like, can we have some indicators that we can use to track how this plays out for food systems? But now we're really adapting them in the case of what can we track in the short term 
to understand how the coronavirus is playing out for food security. And so we'll have those and then we'll be able to um, evaluate that and understand what, what were some of the major things that made a difference. And so that we'll be better prepared next time something happens. Exactly. That's the goal. Wonderful. Ronnie, Neff, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.